Hi, here's Florian with a new guest. So I would say introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Stefan Heller. I'm the founder and CEO of FinCompare. We are a platform for SMEs to find, compare and close the best financing solutions. Cool. So how did you come up to this point? Like what, what is the story? How, what did you study and what did you do after your studies? Sure. Um, so I'm 33 years old. Um, I was born in Munich um, and did my uh, bachelor in, in communications. Yeah. So there I studied in Vienna. Um, in initially looking into PR and journalism and I wrote actually my bachelor thesis already on on more marketing focus online marketing focus topics um, and learned during my uh, sort of bachelor that I wanted to be more in finance and business and uh, then I did my master actually in international business with a major in corporate finance where I studied uh, in London Paris and Berlin um, and then I initially wanted to be in investment banking Uh, did an internship there during the financial crisis, uh, realized that this market maybe isn't isn't directly for me. So I joined uh, a management consultancy called Roland Berger after my studies, uh, was headhunted by Rocket Internet in 2011 and then joined uh, Groupon, the daily deal site uh, in London, um, working for Tobias Church, the founder of Contorion, and then later Chris Moore, one of the co-founders of Auto1. Um, and worked there in multiple teams and departments for almost four and a half years. And then beginning of 2015, I left uh, Groupon, uh, moved from London to Berlin and started uh, a company called Watchmaster um, together with, with uh, Ronnie Alswede uh, and some founding investors, uh, basically with the goal to disrupt the luxury watch market. Uh, it's a re-commerce model for luxury watches, so we buy luxury watches um, uh, and do central authentication and refurbishment here in Berlin. And then we sell those watches on. And there actually I learned about the problem of uh, SME finance uh, because we were buying those watches on our own balance sheet in the beginning. And obviously you need a lot of working capital. Um, we asked our house bank uh, if they can provide us a loan because obviously the, the, the assets are here, the inventory is here. Um, It was a really strange process, took a very long time, lots of face-to-face -face meeting with no clear agenda and outcome. And, um, you know, when you're a startup, you're venture capital backed, you have a high-end CFO from Morgan Stanley, you yourself understand a little bit about finance. Um, you're kind of a professional in that sense. And so I thought, okay, if, if I have this problem as a professional, yeah, how does a normal business that doesn't have a finance background, that doesn't have a CFO Uh, and, and kind of millions on the bank to, to manage a process like this. How do they really do this? So I started to Google around and try to find financing solutions for SMEs. Uh, that was all in 2016. At the same time, um, a couple of uh, people I knew were starting SME fintech companies. So Billy and Finata were started back then. Um, And so I thought, okay, this market is super fragmented. There are so many providers out there. But for businesses, it's actually really, really hard to learn about these solutions and to find them. There's no Check24, there's no Smava, there's no real platform for this. Um, and so that was the initial idea for FinCompare. So I, in, in October, 10th of October, 2016, uh, I started FinCompare and we went live in April, 2017 and have been live for a little bit over two years now yeah, and have been growing quite well. 
So do you do it parallel to the uh, watch platform or? No, I left Watchmaster operationally. So I'm still a shareholder there and the company still runs very well and grows very fast. There's a new management team that do an amazing job uh, disrupting that market still. Um, yeah, but I unfortunately have to focus on, on one thing and I just uh, focus on FinCompare because I, I truly believe that this is one of the largest markets I have uh, ever seen really. And if this really moves online right now, which I think it is, uh, over the next five to ten years we will see a massive Uh, company being created there or platform being created there uh, for SME finance yeah? and I think FinCompare really has a shot uh, to, to win this market Before we go deeper in your um, in, in FinCompare so it's a really smart idea like to or it's a really smart way to identify problems you, you have yourself and then check how if others have them as well and then solve them but before FinCompare how Did the changes happen? Like, how did you decide to do something else, to do a different internship, or to to found uh, the the watch watch platform? So, what was the process there? Yeah, so I think you know my CV is is you know maybe it's strange. Yeah, so I don't know. I I went to boarding school when I was 15. And back then, it was 2002, I was um, one of the first kids who had a digital camera. And I was always taking photos because I just loved photography. And my friends always asked me to burn CDs for them of the photos. And I just got really annoyed by always burning the same pictures on, on CDs. Yeah? And so in the boarding school, MySpace was blocked. And you didn't really have uh, Instagram or Facebook, didn't exist back then. So I created, uh, I learned how to code and build a social network called CityRocker.de yeah, um, to share party photos and photos in general with my friends. Yeah, and it grew really fast, actually organically. And so suddenly I had 30,000 users on CityRocker.de uh, sharing photos and writing, like it became like a community where yeah. people wrote about parties and kind of, you know, these, these party communities. You had a couple of them, Schwarze Karte, I don't know, Nachtagenten. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, these, these uh, communities existed back then. Um, and City Rocker kind of was kind of for me like a learning playground where I learned to code. Um, and I then the next sort of topic came, uh, we were all playing Flash games, Flash browser games, you know, um, and they were blocked in boarding school. So I learned how to build Flash and how to code Flash to recreate those games inside uh, City Rocker. So I, behind the login wall, I have my secret gaming area where I could play games yeah, in boarding school and <laughs> that's why I learned flash and then at some point kind of flash became a little bit meaningless so yeah. uh, all my my skill got to uh, was a little bit wasted um, but I was always entrepreneurial and a bit maybe opportunistic also trying to um, getting quite excited about new things so for me I get I get very excited about business models about ideas about problems that I want to solve And I, I never really see the challenge. I always like to see the opportunity. That sometimes makes me also a little bit naive that I think everything is possible. Um, and that can be also a stretch. But in my career, at least, this has always worked out. Yeah? So um, when, I, you know, when you study communication science, which is a, let's say, relatively soft topic, to move into corporate finance is a complete different yeah. uh, skill set in that sense. Yeah. Um, And I've done internships uh, from uh, from TV Munich, one of my first internships in, in Munich, local TV station, to BMW in, in Tokyo, uh, to um, you know a, 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 an advertising agency in the US, 
to UBS in investment banking in London, um, to Waterland, private equity. So all over the place, which I think is now as a founder is one of the key skills um, that makes, uh, that helps me at least in a, in, in a daily context that I have certain understanding of how marketing works, how sales works, how finance works. Um, and so there's very little uh, from just my general education that I haven't really touched on. And in addition to having worked in now startups for almost 10 years, um, and especially also in Groupon, which was like, you know, rocket founded, uh, or my city deal was rocket founded and rocket run, um, an extreme learning experience. And so I've seen just multiple Uh, crazy environments in a very short period of time so um, my my framework my mental framework my mental map to recognize patterns to recognize um, topics has become actually quite good so I, I can see very fast what has to be done and what decisions have to be made and that's one of the key roles as a founder that you have to take decisions um, and that helps me at least today yeah. Is there like a key key book or like a key key experiences which um, helped you to create or describe this framework? Like if I say yeah. I want to learn that, yeah. what you would uh, what you would t tell me? I think it's a it's it, it's a it's a it's multiple books and a little bit of multiple content pieces that you need to piece together and it, you have to create your own version of that right I'm not following kind of this is the standard framework and I'm following it yeah. I just apply it to, yeah. to me what I like about stuff the first real book that impacted me significantly was 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss yeah 4-Hour yeah? um, Workweek is actually not about only working 4 hours but it's a it's a book about lots of tools that help you to structure your work as effective as possible. So you right. can have with very little timing uh, a high output uh, you know, work scenario. Yeah? yeah, And that has helped me significantly to structure my day, to structure my workload in order to just handle a lot of things in parallel. Yeah, And I think you can apply the four-hour work week rule to like an 80-hour work week and therefore by becoming significantly more uh, efficient than your peers yeah so that gives you a competitive advantage in addition i like there's a book called the goal yeah um it's about it's a sort of an 80s uh, business novel let's say it was given to me by one of my first bosses of like for, former mckinsey partner yeah. who said this is like a standard book at mckinsey and it's about total quality control And it's inside a factory. So it talks yeah. about bottlenecks inside a factory and uh, how to measure that and how to remove those bottlenecks. And it's all inside a nice story. Yeah? yeah. But it's about this total quality control inside a factory. And if you look at startups, they are technically also a factory. Yeah. So yeah. there can be more like hands on a factory where you have salespeople, operations people and people having to touch stuff. Or there are technology, there's a factory where there's certain handovers between uh, product teams that need to run smoothly, etc. But if you understand that kind of everything is a factory and everything can be run by numbers, uh, it really helps you to identify drivers. Yeah? And that's one of the key learnings I got from that book is how do you identify the, the drivers in a business model, in a team, in a project And how do you influence those drivers in order to create the highest possible result? Yeah? Uh, so that was the second book. And the third book I'm actually reading right now 
is uh, called Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, Ray Dalio is um, the founder of Bridgewater, one of the or the most successful hedge fund in the world. Yeah. Uh, predicted the financial crisis, predicted uh, the um, new economy bust, like lots of things, uh, basically every single crisis. Uh, and uh, extremely successful. And he has written now a book uh, that explains how he runs Bridgewater and how he built it. And it's all based on these principles which are kind of a framework for also understanding drivers technically, right? So yeah. um, I'm halfway through, so I haven't finished the book yet, but it's, uh, it's super interesting to read um, and you can apply it to work and to life. Yeah. So I think um, if you, if you, you know, you can apply these frameworks, not just to your work topic, but also to your real life topics. And then I think that this, um, relationship between work-life balance that a lot of people talk about is actually not that much a balance, right? That it's one versus the other. It's more a symbiosis where you have to make sure that your work is fulfilling and is, as part of your life makes you happy because otherwise nothing will make you happy, right? That's that, correct. Yeah. But like even if, if it makes you happy or like it, it, it it's fun for you, Uh, it's really demanding and it's unlimited demanding like there's always something to do there's always something to think about it so how do you how do you handle a balance between a, like a work-life balance or like to keep yourself on sanity on health I, I mean as i said i don't believe really in the in the pure balance i believe in the symbiosis because i think also your private life can be equally tough and demanding right if you if you you know you have trouble with your partner you have I don't know, your kids aren't doing well in school, you have financial troubles, you, you, you want to be really good in sport or you want to lose weight and you are not diet. And I don't know, whatever you do, regardless which context, there's always a struggle in some, yeah. some way or form. Yeah? And you need to be able to just accept the struggle and accept, embrace the chaos a little bit in that sense and just keep a clear head and structuring it. Yeah? And I think there... Um, What I've learned and what helped me significantly is meditation, right? I, um, through also the, the Tim Ferriss books and the podcast and kind of listening to his content a little bit, I've learned quite, quite young that a lot of successful people in the US are, are, are using mindfulness, are using meditation as a way to handle stress, to become more um, kind of have a better, let's say, um, Yeah, tolerance for stress, yeah, personal as well as in a business context. And this has helped me. I, I meditate almost daily and it's helped me significantly to just keep focus and keep a clear mind. Um, in addition, obviously, the, it's the basic rules kind of, yeah. Uh, do some sport, eat healthy, have a healthy relationship, yeah. If, if these things all work together, then your workload, whether you work you know, 20 hours or 80 hours a week doesn't really matter anymore because it's kind of, it fits all together. Yeah. I yeah. think that's, uh, that's very important for, for oneself to really get comfortable with. Yeah. And always keep perspective and ask yourself, it's what happening right now is what you want. Yeah. Like that's probably also helpful to all the stuff you already said. Yeah. That's very true. The cool thing is you said like you're, you're quite, you get quite easily excited for something um so you said like okay you teach yourself programming because you got excited about like this um solving the issue with the photos so and i think everyone can relate to that 
but not many stick to something you know if they start programming they they, they like to try it out say oh that's difficult and then they give up so what was like how can you describe like how this works for you like how you can stick to something when you're excited to it yeah i mean i'm, I'm probably not the one that sticks to things very well right i've <laughs> i've started so many things in my life that I get to a certain level and then I kind of lose interest in them too, yeah? But I keep a certain level, right? So I think I, you have to accept it. If, for example, for me, when you start programming and I was mostly doing front-end, PHP, HTML, a little bit SQL, um, that I will never be the best coder, for yeah. sure, yeah? You, so you, you just realize what is your limitation in that sense. Yeah. But what you also realize is how stuff works, yeah? And that's, yeah. I think... That's very important from a from a building companies standpoint. You need to multiply yourself. So you need to understand where are your weaknesses and where do you need to hire people to cover those weaknesses. But also, how do you manage those people by understanding what their work is actually about? Yeah. yeah? So it's it's super important that I can I've, I've, I can code a little bit. Yeah, and I can I, you know I, I'm not I can build tools and I can today. Tech is ten, I mean, ten hundred times easier than in 2002 when I started. So you have very easy uh, things how to connect tools with APIs and how does how basically the internet works today. It's become much much easier, and just having a very very basic understanding of that, super super basic. Yeah, probably kids learn this in school today. Yeah, but this helps you. At least it helps me to really understand what a developer is doing, how product should work, how design should work. Yeah, how that all correlates and works together, and also what are the limitations. Yeah, and but but also what is possible yeah so um this i think is quite helpful and then at the end it always comes down to structure and and project management or product management in a in a more um structuring way of of things yeah because that's i think the biggest problem of getting excited about stuff is not just externally that you have new business ideas or you get pitch decks and there is an angel investor and they're kind of exciting but It's even in one company. What do you do next? How do you prioritize it all, right? It then comes down to strategy, to making sure you can cross-functional uh, project management because there's no isolation in a company. There's always a team effort of multiple people who also talk different languages because they are specialists in that sense. One is an engineer, one is a product guy, one is a designer, and one is a, you know, in our case, in a corporate finance advisor who knows how to read a balance sheet and knows how to talk to SMEs to advise them on the best uh, uh, financing structure. Um, and to make sure these people talk to each other properly and nothing gets lost in, tr in, in translation um, and not by top-down managing them but by really giving the space and the structure for them to work so we have implemented things like okrs we have like all hands meetings where we talk about the kind of product developments and issues we are also facing we have radical transparency on our numbers on our data and this helps to bring people together to actually solve problems 10 times better than you can solve them yourself as a founder and you just need to create that space for this alignment to happen and uh, give the direction so they all walk in the same way. So you said the key factors for you guys to uh, to let uh, cross-functional and cross -function people work together and understand them each other is OKRs, um, all hands meeting, you said it, like that they are all together and uh, see one problem or get like updates. And what was the third one? Uh, 
OKR, all hands meeting and oh, not top down approach, like yeah. more agile approach probably. Let, exactly. the, let the team solve the problem. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, like you, you, you're driven by you're driven by innovation. Like the the marketplace were always something new. How? What is innovation for you? Like how you would define it? How you would describe it? I mean, innovation is. Yeah. It's a hard word for me to get, uh, you know, comfortable with, right? At the end, am I driven by innovation? N not really, right? At the end of the day, I'm driven by markets, right? Business opportunities, yeah? And I think business opportunity can be in kind of low innovation, right? There can be, look at the cannabis space, what the startups are doing in that space. Is that really innovation, what they are doing? Or is there just a, a regulatory change that traditional businesses aren't changing fast enough? And therefore, you have startups in exclamation marks being now created to monetize a traditional trading business, yeah, technically. So um, is that really innovation, right? So there's obviously there's a whole business book uh, section about innovation, how that is defined, etc. And I, I think about innovation, about market opportunities and how to solve them. Yeah, that doesn't need to be full innovation in a technology, doesn't need to be innovation in, um, you know, just automating everything and reducing the human and the, and the equation. But it's always about business opportunity in that sense and finding new ways to approach things. Because I think that's where startups are very different or can be very different. If you if you look at um, traditional industries, very often it's like that's the way things are done around here, right? This mentality, yeah. yeah? Um, this is toxic. Yeah, you kind of you never and you never take on new opportunities. You don't really take the challenge. You don't uh, take the hard steps of sometimes firing people who are not really fitting the strategy anymore, or hiring new people and giving them the freedom to really disrupt yourself. Yeah? yeah, and I think their startups just have a much better way to innovate in that sense. But innovation there is could be done by incumbents too if they would have if they would allow for that. Yeah? Yeah. If they wouldn't block it, and that's what we see very often in the, in the financing world. Their innovation. And disruption is very often more a PR topic yeah. than it is actually a internal commitment yeah. by the top top management to say innovation comes at a price, right? And the price is not an IT budget or something like this, but the price is that people who may have worked in this company for 30 years have to change and they may not be happy about this change yeah. and they may quit or you need to let them go for this yeah? yeah but that's the price of innovation yeah so you sometimes have to part ways with people who are not suited for it and it's not for everybody and then technology is an enabler of that but very often it's purely about thinking about it in new processes in implementing new tools and being more agile as an example in IT development not like top-down waterfall logic and things like that yeah i think that's that's innovation to me and that's what is exciting yeah, yeah. and always remember um culture eats strategy for breakfast peter f trucker <laughs> so don't focus on a strategy we are now disruptive uh, focus on the culture and how you said like you know enable the people and like take take the costs you said like comes always by a cost so If you're like really focused on like bringing cross functions together and that's let the company run really effectively, how you keep the overview and how you prioritize? Yeah, I think that's the that's the hardest part in a growing organization. Yeah, so FinCompare is now 60 people. Um, that's after two years, right? So 
obviously uh, if you grow that fast also in, in headcount you realize and I mean I, I learned this before also every time an organization doubles kind of you, you it breaks in half yeah, yeah. so um, it, the culture breaks in half the initial the early people uh, kind of get angry because suddenly they don't work with the founder anymore suddenly there's mid-management the mid-management doesn't know all the legacy stuff why things are really that broken or that yeah. crazy um, and so it's it's always a little bit managing the chaos and I think that will continue if you grow right if you talk to founders who have companies you know with over a thousand people they have pretty much the same problems yeah. they're just not, not much bigger dimensions yeah, yeah? but yeah. i think this stuff will never really go well you just have to plan for it and get comfortable with it in that sense and, and keeping a clear head and in and going through it right and then it will all work out at the end of the day yeah, yeah. i think that's that's uh, for me at least very important and then culture is also something that is is can be a very high level um, topic where people just put some posters on the wall with you know these are our values and nobody yeah. looks at them anymore um, for us it's really about behavior that we try to educate people um, on what the behavior is we want them to do and what we want them to follow and so we reward uh, great behavior and we are uh, we openly praise a lot And if we see behavior that we don't like, we immediately have a one-on-one -on -one and we talk to the people and give them feedback. Yeah? So having this really active feedback culture um, and there are very um, radical communications of being very clear, not like the feedback sandwich in that sense. Yeah, something good, something bad, something good. Yeah, but you kind of say what you what you what it made you feel, right? What it ha what ha what the what you thought about the behavior and that has a big impact right it's not for everybody right a lot of people also find it sometimes too harsh find it too direct um, but it's at least to, for me it's the best way to to manage an organization and you have great outcomes doing it because you always know where you stand and that's very important um, as, as part of a growing culture of a growing organization that you have this clear transparency on where you stand with your peers with your Uh, with other people in the company, but also how your work is impacting the entire company in itself and the numbers. Yeah. Cool. Can you give a concrete example on that? Like they said, okay, we said this value, and then uh, you track the doing down like that, and then yeah, so this is how you make the correction. Yeah, it can be very basic about decision making processes, yeah. right? When you always when you say you are number driven or something like yeah. this as a value, yeah, and. You have obviously in the beginning of a startup, it's always very founder driven. So you have that idea and you tell people, look, this is the great idea that I have. These are kind of the features I can imagine today. Let's build it and let's see how it works. Yeah. yeah. So you can build like an MVP of that and then you see some numbers and then you learn and you build it from there. Over time, uh, Obviously, this wasn't really based on clear numbers. This was mostly based on hypotheses. And then you have numbers to validate that. But over time, then, when you give up more of this responsibility to product owners or product teams or marketing and other teams, um, you see that sometimes decisions are made by people without having a clear either hypothesis or numbers to back things up. And so this is a behavior that you then have to mention directly where you say to people if they run a meeting for example instead of pointing them out in front of everybody and saying hey where's what you base this on what are the numbers um, are you stupid I don't know like in personal <laughs> this is bad right this you should yeah. never do but if you take people out of a meeting uh, and tell them hey look 
Um, I understand what you're trying to do, but I feel uncomfortable in taking the decision right now because I'm really missing the numbers. Have you tried to look the, them up? Yeah? yeah. And just telling people that you really have a personal problem by like taking a decision or by moving forward with something, you teach them that behavior of saying, hey, okay, I need to have numbers in order for Stefan to take a decision or for somebody else to yeah. take a decision. Um, so I better have my numbers in place the next yeah. time. Yeah? So this is kind of the, the behavior you see, right? It's, or it can be in smaller cases where you say um, you have, you know, you're very customer-centric, what we try to be. Yeah. Um, and so we have every month, the management team needs to spend two days um, on the phone with customers. Yeah? Yeah. So that's for me is behavior, right? That you can you can tell people, look, we are not just customer centric because we say we are, but everyone from the CEO yeah. to to HR spends two days with our customers on the phone, yeah. therefore really helping our customers and understanding how we are impacting their lives by building better company and build better tools. Yeah, that's a pretty good trick if you ask the most CEOs when it was the last time you talked to a customer. Never. Except Tim Cook from Apple. Like, I think I read somewhere that like every Monday from 5 to 7 a.m. he sits on a desk and like answers or reads support emails or like from customers' emails like with requests or yeah. complaints. So he does it as well. I do think, I mean, you know, these, there's Amazon, there's lots of companies, Zappos, they, they're very customer-centric. They, they have all kind of different ways to uh, look after this, right? I, I do think that there's also a lot of miscreation around this stuff, Yeah, that there's a lot of bullshit being posted and shared and uh, kind of over-exaggeration. Um, But I think it's it's not about being perfect in these topics, but about just doing it. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just if it's correct or not, you learn it. But yeah. just just start doing it. Yeah, sit down on the phone and talk to some of your customers. Yeah, I yeah. think that's every CEO should do this. Yeah, and especially when times are tough, right? Startup is always a roller coaster. Every you know doubling of people, you break the organization in half in in terms of culture. But every couple of months, your growth may stop. Your your You may grow too fast. Your operations don't scale anymore. Your uh, your platform becomes slow. Your, your website loads slower because you suddenly have more users. Um, all of these things just just happen, and so you need to be very very transparent with with your team to pay attention to these things uh, in order to to make sure they you know they they happen in a controlled way. Yeah. So let's say. Uh, It's a, it's a little bit like that, that you, you kind of fail a little bit, like you make mistakes, you fail, but you learn very quickly and you don't repeat those yeah. mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, it's also something Amazon uh, preaches that likes to say, you yeah, know, if you're not sure which decision to take, just take one and learn from it if it was wrong. Okay. So a marketplace is one of the hardest things to build up because you need both sides. You need like the seller or the buyers or like the, the one side and the other side. So what, what are your insights? Because you built two marketplaces so far. Um, to to get a marketplace running, like to start with it. Yeah, I think it uh, it depends what kind of marketplace you're building. It think compare in itself is a SaaS enabled marketplace that has multiple user groups, not just two sided, but almost three sided or n sided, yeah. and it has an enterprise user group on one side, so banks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not like that. I have supply and demand, and that. Uh, you provide money to somebody else so like a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace yeah. like uh, something like how Lendico or Funding Circle started um, 
but it's you we have real banks you know we have 275 banks and, and tr really traditional large organizations where um, you need to have an enterprise sales cycle right some of these Uh, the fintechs, the alternative financing partners, they're relatively fast to partner with you. Um, but if you want to close Commerzbank, Deutsche yeah. Bank, Postbank, uh, Unicredit, and so forth, um, you need to run through multiple loops inside a bank to really get a contract. Yeah? Okay. Um, and then um, this, is, this is what makes FinCompare um, slightly unique in that sense that you could really be focused really the first three months of the company just on these bank relationships to start building up purely the supply side. Um, so we, but once we were going live, we already almost had over 200 banks. Yeah? Yeah. And that has helped us to um, work with them, right? They obviously didn't get a lot of volume from us in the beginning. Yeah. And so they, we were like a little broker to them, but they all understood the vision. They liked yeah. us. And so yeah. since we said, okay, look, let's make a contract now and then we'll, we'll send you some customers in a year or something like this, but let's start working together. Um, this was fine for them. And now we could focus for really... Uh, almost two years now on the on the demand side. How do you really scale uh, demand? And there, uh, what the uniqueness is in the SME financing world is that you you are in a transitionary market. You are in a market that is predominantly offline today, yeah. and, and therefore you have to find ways to get where your customers are. So you have to get offline. And um, how do you build a digital product for an offline acquisition part? Yeah, who are the channels that that, that you're going after? And that's where we are right now, that we say, okay, FinCompare online directly works well. You have good unit economics. It scales, it scales fine. But if you really want to build a, a business that is uh, market-leading, that you know, does tens of uh, millions in revenue and is growing you know, double-digit double annually, um, then you need to go offline. Yeah? You yeah. need to find ways to get where your customers are. Yeah. And for us, this is really uh, offline brokers enabling them with technology To handle their customers better, yeah. so we are really focused on the corporate finance advisor, the, the the SME financing advisor, can be a leasing advisor, can be in factoring, can be as a house bank like a traditional yeah. Sparkasse or Volksbank. How they can handle their customer better, so they never have to say no. So yeah. they have one suite of um, tools. How they can really sell. Uh, and provide a better service yeah. to their customers by giving them a holistic view of the financing ecosystem. Yeah. Because they have already the, the customer connection and so you just focus on them. Correct. How was it in the, in the watch platform? So at Watchmaster, we started off initially um, buying watches mostly from um, official watch sellers, Yeah, really this sort of B2, uh, B2C, so buying from um, businesses, selling to consumers, yeah. doing the authentication refurbishment in-house. And then we, we have realized very quickly that the pre-owned used watch market, like real used watches from consumers, is the biggest opportunity to go after. So then we have really focused purely on that, buying from uh, private consumers and selling to private consumers. Yeah. And that's what Watchmaster does today, 100%. Yeah? And that's where they are market leading, where they have the best pricing engine in, the, uh, in Europe um, to really value watches almost fully automated, to do refurbishment, to do yeah. authentication, to have all that expertise in-house to handle that professionally because that's a massive operational excellence topic uh, which you have to build up in-house in addition to the technology. Um, 
And there it's a, it's a more performance marketing play at the end of the day because you have you have a certain brand aspect. Yeah, watches are also a collecting items, so you can have repeat Correct. transactions from yeah. customers. But a lot is down to performance marketing and building a brand around it. Cool. Yeah. So how do you educate yourself? Well, we talked about the books that I'm reading. Uh, I, I do listen to to podcasts, especially when I'm traveling. Yeah. yeah so. Uh, to me, travel time is, uh, is is podcast time. Unfortunately, I moved um, uh, to very close to the office, so now I have a uh, I have a two minute commute. Uh, so basically, the office. Just yeah. move to the office. <laughs> yeah, like a, a year ago, it was nice. I could like for at least half an hour in the in the U-Bahn yeah. listen to some podcasts, but now it's become so short, so that I really don't have time that yeah. much anymore. Um, um, yeah, but then I try to talk to other founders also very openly about what they are doing. Yeah. Um, I'm learning from other companies a lot. I'm very open with what we are doing, what my, my learnings are, and I try to give back a lot um, to the kind of startup community here in Berlin because I do believe that at the end of the day, it's 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 kind of a generation. Uh, topic: How to build a, a startup community. I see myself as well, maybe third generation of founders here. Right? You have you had Rocket first, like yeah. really the Zambas first, being extremely successful, great success story coming out of Germany. Um, then you have not the Zalando founders. You know they all uh, did extremely well. They're giving back to the community. They built uh, great VCs or supported great VCs like Cherry Ventures yeah. and others and yeah. um, now I think it's, it's, it's kind of the third generation and I think there it's, it's, it's always less about getting rich by yourself or just about the money aspect you know finding kind of a, a niche like building up a company in two years and then flipping it very quickly yeah. and then the company dies afterwards and, and you just move into real estate right sort of yeah. this, this approach um, for me, building companies and building really tech companies and startups is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and whether FinCompare gets extremely successful or middle successful, I don't know yet. Yeah, but I'll definitely continue to build companies. Yeah, so um, and I think there you have to give a lot of knowledge back to the community. You also have to make sure that your key employees and, and your team, especially your early team. Has a has a great incentive. Has, yeah. has also some shares um, because this is where I think you have a huge difference to how Silicon Valley works. Yeah, when you're really there in San Francisco in Palo Alto and you talk to some people, you talk to people who are in their 80s. Yeah, and they say they've done startups for all their life. Yeah, yeah. and then you talk to them. Okay, what startups have you done? Right? Oh, I built HP or I built Compaq and things like this. Yeah, where yeah. you have. Um, really companies that today everybody knows but they used to be startups at some point yeah. in their life yeah and they all give back they are all active angel investors they've invested into vcs um so they're limited partners there they are active advisors they're board members you know there's all this community around it and this knowledge sharing and i think there sometimes in in germany we are still very very early yeah? there's more and more communities being created there's really cool stuff happening in the ruhr bochum area yeah. um, there's very great stuff happening in munich yeah. very technical things coming out of tu yeah. and the university there um and Berlin is, is obviously a little bit more advanced because you have a longer history here of startups and you don't have really other industries in the city uh, apart from maybe politics. Um, so I think for me as a founder, it's really important to, to give back and therefore I receive also a lot of feedback and knowledge yeah. on how to get better myself and how to educate yeah. myself. Yeah. Pretty cool. So you said like you want to build startups your whole life. So when, when is FinCompare finished? 
never <laughs> when is something ever finished i think it's always about stages right so you I, you know i'm i'm a i'm a very hands-on founder yeah, yeah. I, this is good and bad yeah that means i can i can do a lot of things myself i can jump in i can yeah. i can do a lot of you know hands-on stuff in, in marketing and sales and product but that's also not necessarily super super uh scalable to a certain degree yes. right so we are now in that stage where we have hired a very very strong leadership team all over the place who have to find their their stride who have to now find their their pace really to keep up to kind of hit the ground running in the company also but also for me to give away more and more responsibility yeah, yeah. so right now this is still kind of exciting because it's this transitionary phase but You know, if in compare ever, you know, IPO so becomes like really, really big. Am I the right person to run it or do I get bored? I don't know yet, right? For now, I feel I'm so excited about the problem we are solving that I can really see myself at least for the next 10 years or the foreseeable future at least to run this company um, and to make it really great. But, um, you know, you never know, right? If there's a stage where it just becomes more corporate, if it just becomes about profitability, pure cash flow, micro optimization, and finding last, you know, one, two percent growth or something like this, this gets boring to me. Right now, you know, we, we, we grow by 10x every year, right? So that's, that's the kind of growth I like to work in. It's obviously crazy when it comes to workload. When you look at hours, when you look at what I get paid per hour, then I could probably make more when working at McDonald's. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but if you, if you look at that, it's kind of stupid. Yeah? yeah. You have to look at what motivates you. And I think there, what motivates me is, is, is chaos in one hand, but handling chaos yeah. as well as growth. Yeah? yeah. So I get excited by kind of solving chaos. Yeah? yeah. And working a little bit in chaos, but I also get excited by growth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, where we are right now still in that stage and that's why I'm, I'm super excited to, to build this company. Cool. So I can answer the question for you. If you stop being excited, then you should probably do something else. Correct, yeah. Cool. So my last question is, if you could go back in time to your 20 or 18-year-old self, what would you tell him? Uh, I think I would tell myself to continue to code. Yeah. So <laughs> following up on your earlier question, I stopped kind of coding when I was 18, 19, when I moved to university because I initially wanted to study computer science. And my dad told me that IT is only for, for long haired people uh, living in their parents' basement. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you still got the long hair. So <laughs> I, exactly. So <laughs> I, 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 I got the long hair at my parents' house. My, my, my room is in the basement. So <laughs> I basically, I fit all the criteria apart from I can't code properly. So I, I, I would tell my 20-year-old self or 18-year-old self that uh, become more technical, right? I think that's really something that I, I, I sh should have pursued more than probably university because I think tech is really a skill, right? I think also marketing is really a skill. It's like... Um, I, I don't know why there is no um, apprenticeship like in Germany Ausbildung right there's um, education in online marketing in, in, in basic front-end development in design a little bit you have it but there's a lot of these things you don't really you shouldn't really go to university because everything you learn there is outdated so I truly believe that it's it's probably better instead of spending I don't know, in Germany it's relatively cheap, but if you spend everything that in your education, you probably should just take that money 
and start a company. Yeah, even yeah. if you fail, I think you learn 10 times more doing that company, especially people who study entrepreneurship, right? I still don't get why you would ever study entrepreneurship. It's the yeah. most stupid thing you, do. thing you could do in, at a university yeah. because just by doing yeah just take it's mostly private universities who offer entrepreneurship and the courses usually cost you between 20 and 30,000 euros so take those 30,000 euros and try to build up something yeah start a company and and just write your notes and you you are studying entrepreneurship yeah, you, yeah. and you invest in yourself and you have the upside of the company instead of paying uh, some professors for like old school knowledge that is not really applicable anymore But let's let's go back for a second. So because you said like you tell yourself to um, study computer science, but to be honest, out of your today position and out of mine, I studied computer science slash economics. Mm -hmm. So I know I I know okay to code. I'm not the best coder as well, mm -hmm. because except you want to be the best coder in the world, or like you want to just become a really good coder. And there's a certain level because if you're then in a management position or you just need to, you know, delegate something, there's like the better way of knowing to code is not really helpful anymore. So yeah, I think it's less. Question? In my point of view, it's less about code. I I'll definitely never be the best coder ever. Right? It doesn't matter how much I will study. But it's about building companies again. Right? I think yeah. it's really, you know, it's like if when I moved into investment banking, one of the key skills I had to learn was Excel. Yeah. yeah. So I really learned everything I can do in Excel, yeah. and I'm I'm probably still at least here in this company, and I, we've worked here with multiple bankers. You know, we have investors. I'm still probably one of the top people in Excel. Yeah? yeah. And I can write macros. I can write any, I have any shortcut. Yeah. There's not much I can't do in Excel. Yeah. Um, same is true for PowerPoint. When I moved into management consulting, everything was about PowerPoint. And I, uh, you know, at least people who see our decks, yeah, they all like our decks a lot. Yeah. And I, I can just, I'm very good in storytelling in a PowerPoint. Yeah. yeah. Today, this isn't really a skill anymore because I hate PowerPoint a lot. It's a waste of time in, in, to a certain degree. Um, but it's sometimes important. Yeah? And this, yeah. is, this is a skill I really learned and I really acquired. Now, if I want to build an MVP, let's say I want to build a landing page that I connect with an API to our backend in order to push leads into our system. Yeah. yeah. I can't do it. I, I can do, I can now get a tool. I can Google it up. I can read it. It probably will take me three months and I can do it too. Yeah. But this would be the reason why I would have studied computer science so that I can see as a builder, especially in really, really early days, that I, I don't feel so kind of skillless. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's really you're lacking a skill and that frustrates me a lot. And that's where I get angry with myself that I don't have the skill. I try to then do it at some point you need to delegate it because you will never you will never build a scalable product for example your, your yeah. product will suck yeah, yeah. yeah? but but for the MVP just for the MVP or just for little things like sometimes it's about for example SQL I've never learned proper SQL and that frustrates me right I always need our BI guy or people with SQL skill to help me pull reports from our database yeah but I had a good podcast with Vanim like mm -hmm. he's a, a product manager which is really uh, numbers driven mm -hmm. and like I We dove, drove really deeply in because, like, yeah, that's yeah. like how he said. But his theory or his point was saying, like, you know, you can learn it in one day. Like, the SQL is super simple. Like, just read that, do that, and one day, and you can get your own reports because of that. Like, he said, everyone should learn that, that you don't need to annoy the, the BI guys yeah. because of that. So, and I, I see it also a bit similar. It always depends, but like, the same with the API, you know, like, 
it depends on what, but you know, I probably can do it in in one day to one week, and it will fall separately as soon as you too much traffic on it. But it's just out of my perspective for all guys out there. Like you know, don't don't be so much scared and like. I think also you don't need to study to become a really good programmer, like Maybe, especially yeah, to do that. You know, yeah, there's so much, there's so much good courses out there. Just yeah. be open, just be curious, and then just learn to get it done, and then and, yeah, go but this is it. exactly now when you talk about timing. Yeah, why I would tell this to my 20 year old self back then? I was really curious, and I could learn things yeah. like this probably and in, in time, three weeks. Yeah. Today, like let's let's pick your battles. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a much uh, higher leverage when I exactly. uh, do other things than yeah. doing that. Yeah. Um, but again, where I feel kind of I'm lacking skills, right? I can do I can do design, for example, really well. I can do Photoshop. I can do Sketch. I can yeah. build mockups. I can build wireframes. I can all the stuff I can do. But I can't code, and that's like and even like basic coding, like even connecting APIs, webhooks with something, implementing a tracking system on a front end. All these things, I'm just like I can't do it, and this is frustrating to me. And so I would tell my 20 year old self, learn this. This is like this is such an important skill. Whether you study it or you learn it in an internship yeah. or you yeah. just continue to stay on it. But then again, on all like the technical side of things, this is one of the skill sets you will lose if yeah. you don't do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Access stays the same pretty much. Yeah, there's little updates to it. PowerPoint stays the same pretty much. There's not that much that has changed. Uh, and Photoshop has, yeah, the tools have changed a little bit, but the concept is still the, the same. The concept is still the same. But it's moving pixels around. Yeah. yeah so, and there, I feel with, with the technical side of things, you know, you have a lot of, you know, we are now using Python, which is relatively simple, right? Yeah. Uh, then we are, we are using Go in the back end. Yeah. We're using React in the front end. Yeah. There's, there's things like this that, for example, aren't that complicated to learn, right? If you know basic HTML, yeah. you know some CSS, you can actually handle all these other things too. It's knowing these, like, being technically able to do stuff. I think yeah. that's one of the key skill sets that I would always tell young yeah. people to learn how does Google Tag Manager work? Yeah, yeah things yeah. like this, like just basic stuff that if you are technically, you think almost as a joke, yeah, but this is like, how, how does even Google Sheets work yeah, yeah. versus Excel? Yeah, that, yeah. You, that you learn how Google Sheets can be connected with Zapier with an a, like API connecting tool with some sort of WordPress front end. Yeah. This is all not company able, right? You yeah. can't really build an enterprise or some like high-end startup on top of these. But you can build an MVP and you can yeah. try out stuff really cheap, really exactly. fast. And this is what you, yeah. should, what you should learn cool. because you have so many people go here in Berlin, go to Odessa bar, go to any, any, uh, any watering hole Yeah, uh, at any given night, and you have hundreds of people telling you what might they do, what could they do, what great yeah. ideas they have, and it's always and they never executed. Yeah, it's 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 all about execution, they especially never, on the beginning. Yeah, they never fundraise, yeah. they don't build MVPs, they just talk yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, it's always. But like that's the general thing, and like the whole thing. Cool. To sum it up, I would say like a lot of people can definitely learn from you to be uh, curious and like try out a lot of stuff. Um, especially t the technical side. So, Stefan, thank you very much. Hey, thanks It was so much. a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for being here.